Good evening, everyone. Hope you all had a good Passover, Easter, or just a normal weekend, if neither of those apply. If you'll recall, last episode we talked about the origins of the current opioid crisis, but this week I bring you an episode about how practice and understanding in pain medicine has been evolving, excluding all the opioid issues that we discussed last time. As we've now come to understand, pain is really complicated. It is a phenomenon affected by biology and psychology. We've discussed how your state of mind affects your perception of pain, but also that physiology does play a role too. We've talked about treatments including medications, cognitive therapy, exercise, surgeries, and electrical stimulation, and combining some of these approaches together. But actually, treating pain is even more complicated than that, and so this week let's add in the social factors, like a patient's job or housing situation, which I've been touched on but only kind of tangentially. For example, someone might use pain as an excuse to escape work they dislike, and then therefore avoid seeking treatment. This new way of understanding pain is referred to as the biopsychosocial approach, and rose to prominence in the late 1980s. All this means that in the modern era, treating pain is really complicated, even more so than it already was, and needs a ton of expertise that really isn't possible for one person to have. As you can imagine, making a pain clinic that brings together all these people can be quite difficult. There's the matter of funding, which you need a lot of, and many clinicians didn't and still don't specialize in pain treatment. And also, there wasn't any sort of standard model of pain care back in the day. Over time, some of these issues have seen progress. In the 1980s, the International Association for the Study of Pain at least tackled the problem of making standard practices for pain treatment. This may sound kind of mundane, but I think it's actually kind of important to highlight. For many diseases and procedures, there are standard guidelines for how to go about diagnosis and treatment, and even just what staff and equipment should be on hand. Doing a surgery called for surgeons and nurses wielding scalpels and sponges, but pain didn't really have such clear guidelines which made treatments and diagnosis harder. For you non-clinicians, I present a simple metaphor. Suppose every time you used a keyboard, the letters were in different places. It would be very annoying and much harder to type what you want to do correctly. Having standards can make doing things easier, and such was the case with pain treatment as well. The IASP started by defining the people you needed to have an effective pain clinic. In 1990, they suggested that a good pain clinic should include at least two physicians, a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, and a physical therapist. And that's at a minimum. They're also supposed to be able to refer patients to specialists for anything else that they can't themselves do. These were based off research conducted in 1988 on an approach called functional restoration, which was arguably the first evidence-based form of interdisciplinary pain management for chronic pain. This methodology was developed by Tom Mayer and Robert Gatchell, who are both hard to find much information about, but Gatchell appears to be a professor at the University of Texas at Arlington, and is, as far as I can tell, a key figure in pushing forward the biopsychosocial model of pain. The idea is to use a team of clinicians, like described in the guidelines, who tackle the many different facets of pain management and work together to do so. They collect all kinds of information about patients to determine their treatments, including physiological measurements, psychological surveys, and information about the patient's day-to-day -day work and home environments. Patients are then offered intense rehabilitation for up to 8 hours a day for 3 to 6 weeks, which feels to me like a crazy amount of time, although I'm sure it's worth it in exchange for reduced chronic pain. That's basically a full-time job for a month to treat your chronic pain, 
which I do think is probably worth it, but is a lot of time and resources. Over the coming years, many studies were conducted using functional restoration approaches, including in Denmark, Germany, Canada, France, and Japan, all indicating more success compared to other approaches. The U.S. Army even got involved, deciding that functional restoration might be useful in taking care of soldiers. Improvements in body armor meant that many soldiers now weren't being killed, but were suffering chronic pain as a result of survived injuries. In 2003, the U.S. Department of Defense created the Function Occupational Restoration Treatment Program, or FORT for short, which showed significant success, increasing patients' quality of life and personnel retention. Soldiers who weren't enrolled in FORT were three times more likely to be discharged for medical reasons and were more likely to seek out pain-related care even after their discharge. So if functional restoration is so great, why isn't it everywhere? Personally, I hadn't heard of this before at all, and I guess I'm fairly young, so maybe I don't need it, but I didn't even know such specialized pain clinics were a thing before the last few weeks here. One reason these clinics aren't more popular, perhaps, is cost. Surely having so many clinicians spending so much time with patients is really expensive. And well, that's true, but also it's not quite the whole picture. Studies have shown that while functional restoration programs do cost quite a bit, uh, for example, a median of $17,000 per patient per year in one study, medication costs without such programs are actually even higher, with one study estimating median annual medication costs at $21,000 per patient per year. On top of that, those patients who don't receive functional restoration also still continue to see doctors and use up clinician time elsewhere, often reporting that they don't feel fully taken care of. Long-term disability from chronic pain is also, of course, devastating on a personal and financial level. All this indicates that functional restoration programs would actually likely save resources if they were implemented widely. The real reasons for the lack of growth in these specialized pain clinics, as far as I understand it, pretty much boils down to two things. Implementation and incentives. As you can imagine, organizing pain clinics with such a diverse array of clinicians and people and getting them all to work together smoothly is pretty hard. And even if you can justify it by future good outcomes and cost savings, it's still hard. The small number of such specialty clinics also means that there are few people who have done this before and can train more clinicians to follow similar approaches. The other piece of this is that while there may be long-term cost savings for the healthcare system as a whole, those savings don't necessarily go to who pays for these pain treatments up front. In the United States, especially with our fragmented insurance system, many insurers do not want to pay large amounts of money for savings that they may never personally see, since patients often switch insurers periodically. Unfortunately, this lack of funding has led to the strangling of pain clinics, and the number of accredited pain programs in the U.S. dropped from a high of 210 in 1998 to a measly 58 programs in 2011. It's about a 75% reduction in 13 years, which is pretty bad. I can't help but to think that maybe if pain clinics had been growing instead of stagnating, it may have helped ease the opioid crisis as well, since more people would have had adequate non-opioid pain treatments. Hopefully we can reverse this trend and try to make the latest and greatest pain treatments available to all but it will likely require a big shift in incentives or significant changes in priorities among insurers. But anyway, I think between my coverage of the opioid epidemic and the small rise of functional restoration-like pain treatments, that pretty much brings us to the modern day. 
And so, it is time for me to prepare our last episode of the season, which will discuss what I at least think the future of pain management may hold. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to contact me for whatever reason, try out the links in the show notes. Thank you also to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music.